This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Canon Stephen Gautier and is part three of Learning from Elijah, God's Power for God's People. It's the last Sunday in September, and that reminded me that it was just 29 years ago that Barbara and our family, we moved here to Wheaton. And you know, you remember strange things. I remember from the first week or two, one day we got the Daily Herald, we subscribed to the local paper. And I remember a story, it was about a terrible flood in Bangladesh that killed, I think, 20 or 30,000 people. Now, why do I remember that story after all these years? Is I was irritated by the headline. It just hit me wrong. The headline for the story was, Wheaton Man Dies in Asian Flood. And it seemed parochial to me. I thought, gee, 20, 30,000 people have died, and wouldn't you know it, this one guy you know, here is somehow the story. But I got off my high horse fast enough and realized, wait, I have it all wrong. The headline is telling me two very important and different pieces of information. The first is this terrible tragedy that took place far away with people I don't know. But the second is telling me it directly affects us here and now. Someone in reading, reading that paper in Wheaton might found it somebody they, they knew, somebody they went to school with, somebody they went to church with, somebody in their past. So not only was it a tragedy in its own right, it's something that directly affected them. Well, I think we could say as much about today's story of the contest in Mount Carmel. You see, it's a story that certainly took place long ago. It took place about 2,800 years ago. And it also took place very far away in a corner of the Middle East. But yet, the story has profound lessons for us today. It actually speaks directly to us here at the beginning of the 21st century. So let's begin by asking ourselves three questions as we look at, uh, look at this story today. First of all, are we limping between two opinions about God, right? That's what the contest is about. People were undecided. There was the religion of Jezebel. There was a religion, the traditional religion of God. Are we somehow limping between two opinions about God? Is there, is there in our own time fire from heaven that can show us the right answer? That's important because Elijah didn't just make the argument. He knew they needed something. They needed to know that the Lord was God? Is there fire from heaven that can actually confirm us in our faith? And third, if there's that fire, where can we find it? Where can we find Mount Carmel today? Well, let's begin with a little background on today's story. You'll recall that last week Father Brett talked to us about an instance with Ahab and Jezebel. Now, Ahab, there are a lot of wicked kings in Israel. But Ahab was in a special class. We just passed the Olympics. You know how they hold those little signs saying like 9.5 or 8? Uh, Ahab would get a 10. Ahab and Jezebel would certainly get a 10. I mean, it was an art form, these two. And so what, so what had happened here is it was a problem bigger than one person. Jezebel came from Sidon. She wasn't from Israel. And she brought her very morally challenged religion with her. And all the smart people were starting to think it seemed more sophisticated, were starting to go to this faith. Some people were completely abandoning the traditional faith. Others were trying to work out some type of compromise, some way to have it both ways, to keep to the God of Israel but also do the new thing as far as the, the God of Jezebel. 
The situation became so God, so, uh, so um, uh, serious, I'm sorry, that God had to intervene. You know, in, in, in psychology, this is a while back, we used to talk about interventions. You would find somebody, someone you loved, like a family member or a colleague at work or, or a friend, and they're often the last people to know they're destroying their lives. They're starting to get into alcohol or drugs or gambling, and they don't realize what everybody sees is happening. And you love them too much not to do something about it. So you intervene, you come there and confront them. This, this has got to stop. You don't realize it. Everyone else does. Well, this is what happens right before our story today. It had become so bad with this limping between two opinions that God actually has an intervention with Israel. What he does is he has the prophet Elijah pray for a complete drought upon the land. And he caught their attention. That brings us today. It was a successful intervention. He caught their attention. That's where we are as we begin today's passage. So today's passage, what we have is Elijah brings up the real issue. Why do we have this drought? What is the issue? And his argument is pretty simple. Elijah's a simple, straightforward man. He says there's only one God. It can't be the God of Israel and the God of Jezebel. Which is it? You will have to choose. There is no option. You cannot have it both ways. By the way, we know what Elijah's choice is, of course, because his very name means in Hebrew, Eli means my God, Yah, my God is the Lord. So we're pretty clear on Elijah's choice. But they're asking Israel, we need a similar clear choice from Israel. So we have the story of the test today, right? And the terms of the test is we'll have two sacrificial offerings, and we'll ask each, each God to call down fire. We're not going to actually light them, put them on fire. You have to light a sacrifice. God will put it on fire. That's the terms of the test. But Elijah wants to give every possible advantage to the prophets of Baal, every possible advantage. First of all, the contest itself is an advantage because if you're unaware of it, uh, pagan gods had specialties, and Baal specialized in lightning and storms with a minor in rain. Okay, that's what he specialized in. And so calling lightning from heaven really was playing the home court advantage to, to Baal. Mind you, it had a bad season with the drought, but nonetheless, it's what he did. Okay. The second thing is there are 450 prophets of Baal. And as Elijah tells us with pathos today, there's, he's the only one left, the only prophet of God left. He lets them choose which bull to sacrifice. They have two. He said, you can choose. There'll be no doubt about it. You can choose which animal to sacrifice. You get to go first. You can take all the time you need. Just leave enough time at the evening sacrifice. It's the last possible time you could have a sacrifice. You can have all day. Spend all the time you possibly need. And if that's not enough, he says, drench the sacrifice. Now, all of us who've tried like at a campfire where your Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts are just going out camping have tried to light wet wood. You know what a challenge this is. So he basically douses it three times with water running over the trenches. It's completely soaked. So simply put, lest there be any doubt, we're talking about competing at Wimbledon with a ping-pong paddle. Okay, so this is the situation that Elijah puts himself in. Of course, we know the, the, uh, the prophets of Elijah fail. Elijah comes up and he simply calls out, and he calls out for a specific purpose. He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. They needed to know. That was his prayer to God. They need to know is why I'm asking you to do this. And we see the result. Elijah is vindicated. Fire falls from heaven and consumes his sacrifice. And Israel says, we know that the Lord, he is God. And another reason we know the story is successful 
is the intervention ends. After our story today, the story goes on to tell us that God asks Elijah to pray for rain, and the heavens open. The intervention is over. It's successful. So we started out, I mentioned that newspaper headline, Wheaton Man Dies in Asian Flood. And I said the notion is something that seems very distant from us can actually affect us today. So specifically, how does this story, Mount Carmel 3,000 years ago today, affect us here, right now, as Christians today? Well, I would argue that we are pretty much in the same place many of Elijah's contemporaries found themselves. See, the work of Ahab and Jezebel and their descendants has not ended. They are under introducing a new faith, and the key opinion leaders in our society have embraced it and are aggressively um, uh, promoting it, a secular religion that has little or no place for the old God. It's a, fundamentally, a view that's fundamentally incompatible with the Word of God. It's openly hostile to the Christian faith. It's shocking how fast this has happened. And some people have basically, as in Elijah's time, some people have simply walked away. We see this in a very troubling development with surveys where more and more young people are simply claiming they're not Christians or none. They have no religious affiliation. But many more are limping between two opinions. Can't we find a way out? And they've come up with something I would call Me Too Christianity. What it means is we, say, we see this. Uh, we're willing and eager to reinterpret the Scripture, to change anything in our belief and our practice if it's what we need to do to conform to the new faith. If that's what will make peace with them, that's fine. Reread the scriptures in a different way. Put no belief, no, no practice is beyond us. Whatever we have to do, by all means necessary. So like Elijah's compatriots, this is a difficult time. And like them, we don't need arguments. We need those. We have them. But we need God himself. We need the actual action, the fire from heaven of God himself. We need to know that the Lord is God. We need, and only that fire from heaven can give us that knowledge. So where do we find that today? How do we find it, again, 2,800 years from, 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 now, from then, uh, here in Wheaton, Illinois, anywhere else? Well, in the Scriptures, the fire comes one more time. The fire of heaven comes 800 years later on the day of Pentecost. The same fire of the Holy Spirit, it says, filled them. It appears as flames and filled the apostles, and that fire has never gone out since. The same flame that fell on Mount Carmel is burning in his churches, the fire of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. Now, how has it continued to burn in his church? Three principal ways. First of all, the, the fire of the Holy Spirit has given us new life in baptism. You know, the, the church fathers always saw this as being foreshadowed in this story. Because what happens? Remember, what happens is they drench three times, drench the offering as we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then, and only then, the fire from heaven comes down, the fire of the Holy Spirit. So we think of Peter on the day of Pentecost who said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God has called. So first of all, we have received new life in baptism, the actual power of the Holy Spirit. We've received that fire. Secondly, that fire is sustained in us through Holy Eucharist. Remember, Jesus said, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. 
And Paul, talking about the Eucharist, says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is this not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And once again, the church fathers told us, this also we see at Mount Carmel, because what happens? The fire comes to the sacrifice and turns the sacrifice itself into fire. It transforms the sacrifice into fire. And that's why the church from ancient times has had that special prayer we call it the prayer of calling down. It has a Greek name. It's called the Epiclesis, the prayer of calling down. We say, Lord, send your Holy Spirit upon these gifts to make them for us the body and blood of your Son. A participation in the body and blood of Christ. He gives us life in baptism. He nourishes and sustains that life in Eucharist. And the fire of the Holy Spirit speaks directly to our hearts in the Word of God. The Scriptures are not just any book. The power of God is active. Them. That's why Timothy described, he said, all, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And that word's important. We sometimes translate inspired. But the word spirit in Greek and Hebrew means breath. It's one of the means breath. And it means it's the actual breath of the Holy Spirit through Scripture. It's breathed out. Scripture, when we hear it, we ask that we see the breath of the Holy Spirit. His voice is breathed out towards us. That's why it has its power, that incredible power. In the book of Hebrews, we're told, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It has a miraculous power because it's the spirit of God, the same spirit that we had in Mount Carmel. Remember on the day of, of Easter, the Lord encounters, they don't recognize him because they think he's dead. They encounter the Lord Jesus, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they had read the Bible all their lives. They were devout Jews. They'd read the Bible all their lives. But Jesus goes through, and that spirit of Jesus, suddenly the same scriptures spoke to them. They said, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So the spirit works today in his church. It works through our baptism, gives us life, through Eucharist that nourishes and sustains that life. And through the Word of God that today, this very day, speaks to us, the Spirit speaking to us. So we need that confirmation of faith. So how can we take advantage of this? How can we have that fire? Us personally, here as a congregation, each one of us individually, there's only one way. It's a revival of word and sacrament infused by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that look like? What does that look like in our individual lives? First of all, what does it mean to have a revival of the Word infused by the power of the Holy Spirit? There is no substitute for direct contact with God's Word. Now, a lot of times we talk about the Bible, we, we read those are good things. There is no substitute for direct contact. That's why our bishop has told us twice recently the need to put every day directly in the Word. I'll tell you a personal story. When I was eighth grade, I had this prayer book with me. It's very, very nice meditation. It's called My Meditations on the Gospel. I don't know if it exists anymore. Maybe it does. But what struck me is I kept reading it faithfully. But finally it struck me, what really hit me when I read it wasn't the meditation. It was the short line from Scripture. And I said, I'd like more of that. <laughs> and I, that's when I actually started reading the Bible, just reading through the Scriptures. I want, that's what, of all this, this is what speaks to me is the actual Word itself. It changed everything. That's the beginning of my just love for the Word of God came from that. It's a story of the Reformation. We're proudly a Reformed Catholic Church. And the whole story of the Reformation of bringing people back to the fullness of life in God was putting individual, every one of us directly in contact with the Word of God in our own language that we could understand and directly have that contact. 
So we're talking about how we, not only direct contact, but we spend time with the word. How do we spend it? I love a story that I think tells us how. There's a, there's, in the Old Testament, there's a story of, a, of Samuel, the last of the, of the, the great prophets. And Samuel, what happened with, with, with the last of the judges, I should say, and Samuel, what happened is he was dedicated by his parents to be in the temple. He was going to grow up and serve in the temple, sort of like being sent off to seminary. And he's a little boy, and he lived in the temple. Or it's actually the tent of witness. It wasn't actually a building. And what happened, one night he wakes up, and he hears a voice. And so he thinks Eli, who's the priest, the only person there, is calling him. So he said, what do you want? He said, I didn't call you. He goes back to sleep, and he wakes up again. And he comes back, and wait a second. Eli said, oh, wait a second. You don't think this could be God? So he said, you know, because it's been a long time. And he said, well, if it happens again, what do you do? He said, say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And sure enough, the third time he hears that voice, he says, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. That is how we approach the Word of God. We're not there to judge it or enjoy it, or those things. We're there to put ourselves under it. We come to the Word of God, and the way to hear God speak to us, to have this more than an old book, is to say, Speak, Lord, you're here. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. I'm ready to listen. When we do that, God will speak to our hearts, and it's transformative. This is, we have many examples of saints whose lives were changed by lines of Scripture like this. There's one saint, St. Anthony the Great, I want to mention because I think if we had a saint as a patron, it would be Anthony the Great. You see, his conversion came one day because he's arriving late at church. I thought that really fits the rest mold. And he was, he was arriving during the reading of the gospel, and, and what happened is he heard the lines in Scripture, words he heard a thousand times before. The words were, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And Athanasius, who wrote his life, who knew him personally, said, he said, it never spoke. It was God who spoke to me that day. They were reading, it was God speaking to me, and it changed his life. I remember the power of the word for ministry cannot be overplayed. A person I hugely admire is Billy Graham, with all those crusades, the people he brought to a living faith in Jesus. And I remember an interview I saw long, long ago with Billy Graham, in typical humility, is someone was asking him, he said, why he uses so much Scripture when he preaches, because Billy Graham famously would use a lot of Scripture. And he said, well, it's like this. Again and again, I've heard the same story. Someone will come to me and say, I was at one of your crusades, and it changed my life. I've been a Christian. I'm in the church. You know, my whole life is different. It's dedicated to the Lord. And he said, was there something I said so I can use it again that worked? And he said, well, actually, I don't really remember your sermon. Or I, I'm sorry. I, mean, I know you're a great preacher. But there was a word of Scripture you used, and that word actually touched me. It's sort of like a diamond just stood out. That word actually touched me. It's that power that the word has. There's nothing like it. Nothing. Paraphrasing, there's nothing like the actual word of God. Recently, I know Father Kevin shared a word from Scripture he received from me in a very, a very confusing, very hard place. And it was exactly the right word. I heard it as spoken to me. It was the word. It was God speaking. So we need a revival of word to be in the word, to speak, Lord, your servant hears, and expect to hear from God, to listen to God. This is the first part of revival of word and sacrament. What about a revival of sacrament? We need to reclaim our baptismal inheritance. A lot of us are limping about about our own salvation. I'm proudly evangelical, but so many of us are thinking this is somehow our work rather than God's work. It's somehow the sincerity of our faith has saved us. So we keep coming again and again and giving our hearts to Jesus, not because we want to renew, because we somehow didn't do it right the first time. Our baptism reminds us it's not about us. 
It's about God. God has made his choice. We act as though we're in for a job interview. Fifty people are interviewing. Who knows? I might get the job. We act that like it's a tryout for God. Our baptism says to us, I've made the choice. You're the one. Remember, Jesus' baptism says, you're the son I please. Everyone, when we're baptized, God says, this is the son, this is the daughter I've chosen, and I love them. So that choice is made. We don't have to limp about our salvation. We have that. We have God's assurance. We need to live in that faith that we're sons and daughters of God. We have to recognize the Lord Jesus in, in the Eucharist. Remember those disciples on the road to Emmaus, their hearts burned within them when they read the Scriptures, the Spirit spoke, but they only recognized Jesus in the breaking of the bread. They're not in opposition. They go together. They, their hearts burn, but they recognize the Lord in the breaking of the bread. They direct, come directly into contact with Jesus. And finally, a fostering of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm a pretty simple guy. I think the Scriptures actually mean what they say. And the Scriptures, Paul tells us, to each, notice I say there's a whole lot or a good number. He says to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is why we're here in church. We can't do this alone. God has given every single person here a gift of the Holy Spirit that is irreplaceable. Only they have it for the church. And we have a gift the church needs. And the, the, the revival comes when we release the gift we have and accept and encourage the gift of others. That's what revival looks like. So in conclusion, we are living the days of Elijah. We have all the challenges of those days. Jezebel again, Ahab, their religion is very much at work. The good news is that fire that gave them that, that gave Israel the knowledge, that fire is still here today with us. You know, that that fire is still here to confirm our faith. So let us today pray to invite the Holy Spirit this very day to work in us, both individually and as a body, to work in us a revival of word and sacrament so we can make it our own prayer that the words of that ancient hymn, Come Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.